Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosehart Show, live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Today I wanna do this video on a little rant, or I guess it started as a rant, but didn't really become one after I made some posts and got in some DMs with people. Sorry, just adjusting my table. About property management. So I wanna talk about specifically how property management is the biggest piece of investing in real estate and how outsourcing it and self-managing and all the pieces in between can, they can make or break whether you wanna invest in real estate. And so first thing I wanna talk about is, you know, while people are jumping on and you know, getting their questions in, and by the way, if you're getting into the show, welcome. Uh, thanks so much everyone for, for tuning in. Um, property management, if you outsource it, I did a video on Facebook and it got over a thousand views. I just posted it up. I was gonna put a video up to the YouTube crowd, but the quality wasn't there. So I just, I literally grabbed my phone, decided to do a little video. Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Thank you, thank you. Good evening, William, Ryan, hi, hey everyone. Um, and as you guys jump in, keep jumping in the comments. I appreciate all the warm messages. We're talking about property management and how property management, it's sort of like screwed if you do and screwed if you don't. Um, so if you don't get any property management and outsource, then, I mean, you're stuck managing all your tenants and your properties, which is terrible. Um, it's one of the worst jobs on earth and tenants aren't thankful. You know, it's just, it's a terrible job. Um, and it is a job, it's not really passive. And then there's the whole piece I wanna really wanna talk about, which is if you hire a property manager to manage your properties, there's a lot of hidden costs. And so I, was, I thought about throwing in a headline like um, something to the effect of property, bad outsourced property management can cost you more than 25% of the rent. And people are like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about, Mike? And I'm like, yeah. And then I thought about another headline saying like, it can cost you up to 90% of your profit on your rental properties by outsourcing property management. And I'll get into what that means. We'll break down the actual cost of property management line by line, including markups, including management fees, including opportunity costs. But I, and then I, I sort of finished that video and someone sent me a message and was like, well, Mike, self-managing, if your time is more than 50 bucks an hour, isn't a viable solution either. So what do we do? Like, there's so many terrible property managers out there. And when I mean like so many, I mean like almost all of them. Um, any property manager that has more than a few hundred units can't do a good job for your property. I, I haven't met one yet. And the ones that do do a good job charge really expensively for it so you don't have any cash flow. It's a hard business to make work. I, I tried it. I've talked to tons of property managers in the field guys who have built property management companies, if you don't do these things I'm about to talk about, you won't make a profit. So if you can find one that's a unicorn, hold on tight to them and hope they don't expand. Because when they reach scale, then they can't, like property management's the one thing that no one wants to do in the real estate business as they get bigger, as they build wealth. It's just a terrible beast, especially in the D, C, and B class rental properties, which means any property is not luxury. If you've got like a luxury condo downtown or a single family house, this doesn't apply as much. It still applies, but not as much. But definitely for your duplexes and your triplexes, and your boarding houses and your student rentals and all that kind of like multifamily stuff, uh, it applies. And this doesn't apply as much to the super large multifamily. If you got like a 20 unit or bigger, you can get economies of scale and this won't be as bad. But let's tackle this. Before we get to any of the live Q&A that I normally do, I just wanna get this out of the way. It, the video wasn't good enough to make a YouTube video about it, so I'm gonna dedicate the first we'll call it 15 minutes of this show to this topic in lieu of me doing a video on this. And so I'm just gonna get it over with and throw it out there. And if I get a lot of comments about it, good, because that's what I'm trying to do here. First thing, let's, and I used an example. I used an example of a 1% rule 
property because everyone knows the one percent rule is the golden standard here in Ontario. That's what you're looking for if you want to buy a property and have cash flow. And I made an example of one using real data, a real property that I bought that I bird, and it made no cash flow. And it was a property that we outsourced to a property manager. It didn't go that well. And I want to walk you through those numbers, and then we'll back out and talk about you know how things could have went differently, how you know maybe it could go differently for your property, and how if you want to be completely passive in real estate, meaning you don't want a tenants to have your number, you don't want to have to go to your property, you don't have to, and all this kind of stuff. If you want to be really passive, you're not going to have the cash flow that you think you're going to have. So, two hundred fifty thousand dollar property, twenty five hundred a month in rent. Most people are like, wow, that's great. You know, like the goal is to get 1% of the value of the property and rent every single month. So that's exactly what, that's what I used for this example. It was the one that I picked out that people would normally look at and be like, hell yes, smash the buy button. Let's get this property. So $250,000 property ready for 2,500 bucks a month. That's the gold standard. So I used a gold standard property and showed you how there could be no cash flow. Management fee. Some companies charge around eight to 12% property management fee. I used 10% as a benchmark. So 10% of the rent is gone to a property management collection fee. So there's 250 bucks of the 2,500 gone. So you're only getting 22.50 net. Ah, but it doesn't stop there. Almost every single property management company charges a tenant placement fee. It is between, the lowest I've seen is 50% of one month's rent as a placement fee, up to around one month's rent is the industry standard for a tenant placement fee. Now that includes them doing all the background checks and placing the tenants and doing the showings. And it really works out to like $30 an hour work. So it sounds like a lot of money that they're charging you one month's rent, but it's actually not that high paying of a job if they're doing the job properly. If they're doing the proper amount of showings, the proper marketing, and they're spending on the credit checks, et cetera, they're actually probably spending like a $20, $30 an hour rate if they're spending the right amount of time to find you a good tenant. But they, they do that. And let's say it's a student rental property. They charge you one month's rent. It's very standard in London, Ontario. So if you average that out, students leave every like usually every year, if you're lucky, you'll get a year and a half out of them. If it's a normal tenant, they'll stay around two years on average in a multifamily property. People don't wanna stay long-term in a duplex, triplex, it happens. You get the tenant that leaves after six months or a year, you get the tenant that stays five years. So on average, you're gonna get about a year and a half is the assumption that I made. And so that's gonna cost you around 5% just for tenant placement fees. Now, if you've got a property that turns over more often, it can cost you up to 10% of the rent. So you can have 20% of the rent right there to property management, and tenant placements, but we're not done there, like nowhere near done. Every time you get a property that you have a tenant move out, there's something called unit turnover. So unit turnover is the idea that, you know, buddy put up some pictures in his wall, so there's some damage, and then he swatted a fly with his, you know, this shoe on the wall, and then like when he was dragging his couch out with his buddy on the way they moved out, they scratched the floor, and then like last, you know, April before he moved out, his cousin was over and they dropped some water on the floor, so the laminate got a little bit of buckle, so you gotta change some pieces of laminate, or the whole entire floors, even a good tenant after a couple of years, they'll wear it on your floors. Uh, but let's not forget there's nicks on the cabinets and they've damaged, you know, in the bathroom, the, the toilet's a little loose because, you know, they've sat on it a couple hundred times. So you got to tighten all that up. Anyway, I go in there with like a crew and if they're leaving on the 31st of the month, I can usually get it done with a crew there the minute they move out to the first the next day. I can usually pay the tenant off and say, hey, can you move in in the night on the first? And I can have a crew there for 24 hours through the night and I can turn around a unit. That costs me less than $1,000 usually, right? To have a crew of guys turning over a unit. But when a property manager does it, they're not gonna work the night. They're like, ah, screw it, it's not even my property. Who cares? The tenant moves out on the 31st. In fact, they didn't even go there and do a move out inspection. They like get there on the, the, you know, it was on a weekend. So they get there on Monday morning, they do the move out inspection. You already lost a month's rent. They're not getting it rented to the next month. So now you have a month vacancy. Now, if that's happening every 16 months, that could be another 5% of rent on average 
gone to vacancy because no one's thinking about vacancy. And by the way, it might take them, you know, two weeks to turn the unit over because they're slow. They get a flooring guy in there and they get a plumber in there. And by the way, they're marking up that unit turnover when it would cost you a thousand, it'll cost them three thousand to do it. And that's just partly because they don't care and partly because they're actually using just more expensive trades. They're using a licensed plumber, someone easy they can call up who's $75 for a service call. And they're calling up, you know, the professional flooring guy is 50 bucks an hour. Whereas maybe if you were there managing yourself, you'd find a cheaper trade that you have to babysit, et cetera, and so forth. So that's gonna cost you double. So your unit turnovers cost you double. Your vacancy should be double with a property manager than what it would be. And the crazy thing is people are sending me their numbers in Excel and they're saying, hey Mike, in my local area, it's a 1% vacancy rate. So I've used 1% vacancy. And I'm like, no property ever has a 1% vacancy in real life. Like, yes, maybe on average of the units currently available, it's like a one or 3% vacancy. But in real life, there's a month of turnover. At best, you get a month of turnover between tenants where you have vacancy. That's one in 12 if you have student tenants that change over every year, et cetera, and so forth. So there are vacancy costs that are real and people aren't using high enough numbers. And in some cases, a tenant, this happens once in a while. And so it just drags the average up. All the good tenants are basically screwed over by the really bad tenants. And it feels really bad. I've had that happen. I had a tenant, didn't pay rent for six months and then left and it took us four months to renovate the unit because they trashed the whole house. This happens very rarely. It's like a one in you know, 20 times with a property manager. They'll make a mistake like this. One in 30 times, probably a three to 4% chance. Now, if you have 50 or 100 units, this is happening to you every year. One tenant is doing this to you every year. And so I've started to feel the acuteness of how a poor property management placement, and sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes the property manager didn't make a mistake. Sometimes you didn't make a mistake and the tenant just was a professional and they scammed you or something happened in their life and you know, they're, they got a divorce and they got in a fight and things happen. Like even good tenants sometimes go bad, right? And that's just life. That's just people. So another thing I want you to factor in, not just the cost of property management, not just the cost of, um, of tenant placement, not just the cost of the vacancy, not just the cost of the unit turnover when they move out, not just that, but also the cost of bad debt expense, which is an important one to think about. It's when a tenant doesn't pay. So they're moving out their last month. They just decide to leave. And they don't pay the last month's rent. And they, they skip out early. It happens. And property managers aren't going to chase. You probably as the owner aren't going to chase. You lose a little bit of rent here and there. It happens. It was a half a month or a month's rent. A few percentage points be, should be for that too. And that should be double with a property manager. They're least likely to collect. And the tenant feels like there's a layer of separation between the owner and the manager, and they're less likely. Whereas if you are self-managing and you knew the tenant, it's more likely they're going to pay you high. Very low delinquency rates on relationships that I've been able to cultivate with a tenant. Typically, I'm able to work something out. But with a property manager, sometimes they'll just disappear, and the manager doesn't seem to care as much because they have 100 other units to worry about, and their phone's ringing all day long anyway. So that's just the nature of large property management companies. And the worst part is those large property manager companies have hired guys at 15 and $20 an hour who don't care either, who go home at Friday at five and, and don't care. They're tenants themselves probably, and they just, they don't care. Um, so that happens too. So we gotta factor those expenses in. Some people don't even factor in bad debt expense in their cash flow analysis. Some people don't even factor in vacancy at all. Some people don't factor in unit turnover or CapEx. CapEx is the idea that a, a furnace goes, and I could go find a guy to do a furnace for 2,300 bucks, but your property manager isn't that smart. He's gonna go call up Reliance and pay $6,800. So you gotta factor in the real numbers with a property manager in place, everything's double, right? Like I can find a furnace guy, pay him cash, 2,300 bucks, I can get a furnace in all day long. But I know that Reliance, they're gonna call up Reliance or some professional company and it would cost, I've seen it cost seven, $8,000 for a furnace. With an AC and a furnace, I saw it cost $9,800 once. Crazy stuff that property managers think is okay. And the owners don't know any better. You know, they get, they get two quotes from two crappy contractors and say to the, 
say to the you know the owner and say this is what it is, this is the cost, and like it's just just insane how high the cost of some things are, and it's not necessarily their fault. It's just they're focusing on probably high quality probably, and not focused on finding you know the lowest price for you. So that's another piece that I want to factor in. And the final nail in the coffin is maintenance, snow and grass. Now maintenance, I mean like a, there's a leak at a property or you know eaves troughs need to be cleaned out. Um, I typically think of things like a drippy faucet or whatever, things that come up. They're gonna call a plumber for a $100 service call and bill you 150. Property managers typically mark up between 10 and 50% on all maintenance items. So the bill you're getting is never their actual cost and their actual cost is disgustingly high because they don't wanna have to go and meet the person at the property. So they're not gonna hire a $25 handyman, they have to go meet at the property. They're gonna hire a professional who they can send out, who will conduct themselves properly in front of the tenant and require the least amount of management. So it will save them money, right? They're, the property manager is saying, what's the easiest for me? What's the best for me? I want someone who's not gonna screw up. I want someone who's a high level of quality. I don't wanna take a chance with a cheaper guy. You know, what if you send a $25 handyman, he can't fix it if you send another $25 handyman. That will cost, in my mind, I prefer that because it's 50 bucks. You know, even if the first guy is there for an hour and can't figure it out and leaves and they send another guy, it's 50 bucks, they can mark it up and charge me 60. I'd prefer that to a property manager who calls like Reliance and charges me $200 for the repair. Now the repair is both done in, in both case scenarios. One, you just found a handy guy who worked for cash. The other one, you found, you know, a professional company that overcharges and like, it's just the nature of what it is. If you're factoring, and it's cool if you want to use those, if you plan to say, hey, I'm going to use like the most expensive plumbing companies, the most expensive electricians, the most expensive HVAC and everything. I want to use the most expensive contractors that are the best quality. And that's fine. Just build into your numbers a lot higher. Like I see people sending me budgets on 2,500 a month. They've got budgeted like 50 bucks or hundred bucks for maintenance. That's not going to cut it. If you have a property manager in place, you should be expecting a couple of hundred dollars. Snow and grass, they're charging like 50 bucks a cut. I had... We have had some specific examples where the snow has been out of control in some cases and it's like $600 uh, in one month for snow removal. And like this has been, I would never do this, but property managers, they don't know any better. They got like a licensed guy who just charges them like $75 a plow, which sounds reasonable, but it's actually an insane cost. Um, and all these costs get out of control. And if you add this up, if you add up 20, 20 so 10% is 250 bucks for management on uh, a monthly basis, recurring basis, then tenant placement fees. If you just had a vacant building, you had to place tenants and you got no cash flow for like three, four, five months, your first year of ownership with catching up on deferred maintenance on a building you just bought of, you know, probably doing some unit turnover. If a tenant just left, you just bought the property. You may go a year, the first year you own a rental property, even a 1% rule property, there may be no cash flow. In most cases, there's no cash flow in the first year, especially if you have a property manager in place. And that news, like what I just told you at 14 minutes and 50 seconds, that you can buy a property, it's a 1% real property, and it may take you a year to a year and a half before you have any cash flow. That's a shock to most real estate investors. And they call me up like, Mike, you're talking about this 1% rule, talking about all this cash flow. Look what I'm seeing from my property manager. And I'm like, you've probably got the wrong property manager, one. Um, they are overbilling you for sure. And three, you've got to factor in that some of this is just natural. Even if you're self-managing, it may take some time to get to a point where there's cash flow. There might be a lot of deferred maintenance built up. In your first year, you're gonna have to place tenants and get all the property all stabilized. And the stabilization process on most 1% rural properties that you buy is a steep curve. It costs some money, it isn't instantaneous. And so that's something I wanna, I wanna share. But the real numbers here on this $250,000 property, I actually did a little bit of a renovation. So I did a 20K renovation on this property that was 1% rural. It ended up renting for a little bit more than like 2,600 once I was done the renovation. But this specific property that I used as the example at the three minute mark, 
I'm going back to it and circling back. So 2,500 a month in rent, I refinanced it. So the mortgage ended up being, I think it was a 3.4 or 3.0, I have to double check, a three and a half percent interest rate, something like that. But the mortgage payment worked out to around $1,400 a month after I refinanced it. So I pulled all my money out. This is a deal where I've got almost no money in the deal. But before that, I pulled out the money in the deal, it was around $1,000 a month for the mortgage. So you can use 1,000 a month if it's not a burr. So let's say you got 250 bucks in property management, you got around a $200 a month allowance for the tenant placement, you've got, um, what do you got here? Next, you got property taxes, 250 bucks a month, mortgage, $1,000 a month, utilities, assuming they're paying the hydro, you're paying the gas and the water and the reliance bill, you're looking at around 250 bucks a month for utilities, and that's if you have good tenants in there that aren't abusing the water. I've had situations where it's double that, and it's $500 a month, even in situations of 2,500 a month in rent. Next, you have bad debt expense, at least $100 a month to the property manager, probably more. $200 a month in maintenance on the low side to $350 a month on the high side. We've got $100 a month for insurance. We've got $200 a month for vacancy, $100 a month for unit turnover and some capex. You start adding all that up and the snow and grass is also $75 a month on the low side to $125 on the high side. That's real numbers of real properties. You add that up, you know what your cash flow is? Negative $300 a month once you've done your allowances for vacancy and bad debt. So you got a 1% rural property with no cash flow, negative cash flow. People are like, whoa, how am I firing when I'm getting negative cash flow on a property, especially in the first year, it's even worse than that, but on average, potentially negative. Now, let's peel back the layers of these onions. I was somewhat generous on some of these expenses, and this was a property particularly that had C-class tenants in it that the property manager did a specifically bad job on. And because of management, didn't cash flow. And this happens more than you think. Property management can be the death of your passive income. And it won't be passive income at all. Yes, it's passive because they're doing all the work for you, but it won't be passive income because there's no income. So that's something I wanted to share in this video. Um, that was sort of the preamble I wanted to let loose here on YouTube for you guys, was that you can buy 1% rural properties and they might not cash flow with the wrong management. It's, it's crazy how, it's just, it blows my mind. But then again, at the end of it, I was thinking to myself, Okay, so you got a bad, you don't want bad managers, that's for sure. And most co management companies are bad, therefore, maybe there's a system where you could self-manage and make it pretty passive. Like you have a go-to guy, but you micromanage him, and he has a small portfolio. That's what I do right now, and that's been working really well. Lately, that's how I'm pivoting and shifting, um, more so than ever before. I'm finding that if I can sit down, go to all the properties at least once a month, and, and check in, and then be that accountability partner for my manager, making sure everything's being maintained, making sure everything's you know going properly, and also just auditing a lot of the expenses and providing my contacts to my property manager, making sure my property manager's open to using, you know, my handyman that's $40 an hour, who I know is solid, as opposed to, you know, some guy they just call it from a company that's gonna mark them up like crazy, right? There's lots of guys, it's, it's just wild how many people I found who work at, like I know guys, I just met Khadiji who are looking for side work on the weekend, who are, they're licensed gas fitters. They, they have their tickets, et cetera, and so forth. Maybe they work for their own business and they look for some cash jobs on the side and maybe like their furnace is normally 3,500 bucks and on the side for cash, they'll do it for 2,500. If they have a spare furnace pulled out of a unit or something, like a scratch and dent, you can get an even better deal. I've negotiated some crazy things before. I once got a furnace for a thousand bucks. It was a scratch and dent, it was one year old furnace and the guy installed it for me, a really good deal. You'll find these guys, a lot of them, like these HVAC licensed guys, if they're friends of yours, you make good rapport with them and you give them lots of business, they might work for 50 bucks an hour for you on the side and uh, they're okay, they're, they're making 80 grand a year, they're, they're feeling good, they're like, hey, if I can make some extra money on the side, they're licensed, they're, their full-time job's good, then they could uh, hook you up. That's the kind of trades you wanna try to find. But um, anyway, that was my quick rant. Now we're getting into all of the responses and comments to that. Um, yeah, I don't have a perfect solution for you, but just 
be very cognizant that I know all of us on the real estate YouTube space talk about this 1% rule. And I know a lot of the, the gurus and stuff talk about this cash flow you're gonna get. But I get some of those guys coming crying to me and saying, Mike, like I dumped my life savings into these three properties and I have no cash flow. And it's supposed to be passive, but my property manager is like billing me like crazy. And that's just the nature of property managers. Like in the audits I've done of dozens of property managers in Toronto, one in Vancouver, I did one in, in New York area, some in London here, everywhere, it's just bad. Um, there's, there aren't any good property managers. If there is someone that's good at property management, what I found is that they grow to the point where they're not good or they get out of the business because they realize that they're high, like they're a high value skills person who's worth more than property management's like 20, $25 an hour work, right? Um, it's not high paying work. Because typically they, they grow and then they hire people at 15, $20 an hour to do the property management and then it's not good property management anymore. And like the average person you just hire off the street has no idea how to negotiate prices on construction stuff. They just, they don't have the business skill to do the, the management. And if they do, they wouldn't be working for 15 or $20 an hour or 25 an hour, right? For their property management company. So that's the, uh, that's the spiel. And that's something I wanted to share. You can have cash flow on 1% rural properties, especially if you self-manage, there could be up to a thousand dollars a month in cash flow there, um, on the best case scenario, but there'll be months where there's negative cash flow. And I just want to share that with everyone so that it's like, Hey, buyer beware when you're getting into real estate, I think it's important to to be cognizant of the real cost of how you actually run the cash flow analysis, how you actually find out whether or not it's profit. I just, if you replay this, you wanna watch it again. I just gave you some real numbers on the high side, to be honest, but with a 1% real property. Now, the bigger the property, the better the scale you're going to have. So this is like a $700,000 property. It's running for $7,000 a month. You'll probably have better numbers and better margin, but those bigger properties tend to have higher bad debt expense. They tend to have a little bit higher vacancy. They tend to have, you know, stuff like that. The management fee actually goes down. Believe it or not, the bigger the property you get because of economies of scale. But um, something to think about when you're getting into investing in real estate. And the alternative, I guess, is that you entirely self-manage and that doesn't seem right either. I think somewhere in the middle of the spectrum makes the most sense. If you value your time, you'll set up systems so that things are mostly automated and that maybe you have a few key people you, you interact with, but that you're sort of, you're sort of self-managing, but you're not really. You've got someone who's doing all the active management. The tenants don't have your number, but at the same time, you're there sort of microing that person. Okay, so now to the questions to answer those and we'll go to whatever your weekly questions are. I just wanted to kind of get that out there and share that with people who are investing in real estate. And it's, it's also a pet peeve of mine when everyone's sharing on like social media, hey, I'm getting 1,500 a month, $2,000 a month cash flow. My, you know, five properties are cash flowing $7,000 a month. And I'm like, in real life, that's not happening. And if, if it is, it's because they're self-managing and that's their $5,000 a month salary. Like they're working. They're not financially free. They're not fired. You're not fire if you're working as a real estate investor, uh, managing tenants and placing tenants, managing construction and being a project manager. That's just a job. Um, so real estate is, could be a job if you don't make it passive. And so that's why I say you gotta make it passive, but when you make it passive, you lose some of the cash flow. So just bring it all together. I like to just be that guy that's the sobering reality for everyone and says, hey, this is how it actually is in the real world. There are exceptions to everything, but there it is for you guys. I'm laying it out so you know. Don't come back to me and say, hey, Mike, you said 1% rule was guaranteed cash flow. Not necessarily. It is a great rule of thumb. It's a great place to start. There are a lot of properties that sell in London for $250,000 that rent for $1,500 a month and are actually, with a property manager, negative $500 or $1,000 a month. People are losing huge amounts of money. And so all they have is depreciation. That happens a lot too. And that's gross. There's a lot of that happening right now. And if it wasn't for appreciation, a lot of these investors would make no money. 
And so that's something I don't want for you guys. Um, unless you already have another plan like private lending or another passive income stream, and you're just investing in real estate for that appreciation upside, that levered appreciation. I have actually a property or two that break my rule that are just for appreciation, levered appreciation upside. They're properties I like in good areas that made a lot of sense financially when I bought them. They don't cash flow that well, but I, I keep one or two of them because I think long-term there's a development play or there's something there that's gonna give me a huge appreciation. That's because I have a lot of cash flow. I don't need cash flow the same way that I used to. That said, the primary buying, you know, um, I guess, operandi or like the, the style that I use or the, the, the way that I think about buying property is cash flow first. Um, that's a focus in everything that I do. And so to ensure cash flow, good property management is essential. So that's my rant for today. Um, thank you everyone for jumping on. Let's get to the Q&A now. William says, good evening. Hey, doing? Brian, hey. Jason, hey. Anthony, hey. Thanks for all your advice and tricks. Jason, no problem. Happy to share, happy to help. Brandon says, hey, Mike. Hey, how you doing? South London says, hey, Mike. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. First question is from Bruno. It says, hey, Mike, what are... What options are there in financing once you run out of down payment money? I've got four properties in Vancouver and had to max out lines of credits for the last one. Bruno, congratulations for buying in Vancouver, by the way, because that's one of the toughest markets to break into real estate in general. And it's very, very difficult to cash flow in Vancouver. You're most often working for appreciation. So kudos to getting four properties in Vancouver, first off. Like, that's, that's props. Um, second thing is you're asking about how do you keep buying property when you run out of down payment money? Well, typically, if you've bought four properties smartly, you've created equity along the way in all four of these properties. So hopefully, you've bought smart and you've added some strategic renovations or you've changed out tenants and increased the rents or you've added bedrooms or bathrooms or done something to the property to increase the value or you've held it long enough and hopefully you did all that stuff. It's actually and, not or. And there's been some organic market appreciation. Um, thank you, Trevor. That was the word I was looking for. Modus operandi. There you go. That was the word I was looking for. Um, but I couldn't, couldn't bring the word up. But uh, yeah, so Vancouver, talking about the properties. So hopefully, if you've done those things, there's some equity in the property. And by equity, I mean current value of the property now, higher than what you paid for it. And current mortgage balance, probably a little bit lower than what you paid for it. You should have some equity in there that you can refinance and pull out. Now, in Vancouver, it's a bit more of a challenge because you don't have the cash flow offsets to go to a lender or a bank and say, hey, my properties are cash flow positive. Um, can I borrow more money? But if you have, maybe you can get the income up on the properties enough that you go to the bank and say, hey, I'd like to pull out more money. Or maybe you have day job income that will help you refinance and pull that capital out. So the idea is that on the four properties you've bought now, you can pull out a little bit from each one and squeeze out another down payment for another property. Or at least pay off your lines of credits that already exist. Um, or there's always the option to go and find your venture partners or raise money privately from friends, family, etc. Um, you just other investors you meet to raise the down payments. Partnering's great too. You find someone who's a doctor who's got some income or your neighbor who's got 100 grand equity in their house. Say, hey, we can go buy a property together and it can create cash flow. We can have appreciation that's levered. There's lots of ways to get creative to keep taking down deals. So just because you're at four doesn't mean you have to stop. Uh, I have lenders that go up to 50 properties per person. So even I can still, like, I still buy properties now. You pay a little bit more. So instead of like 2.5% interest rate, you're probably three and a half, four percent interest rate. But a lot of credit unions too will keep going to 50 properties. So there's no necessary limit as long as your properties have cash flow and the offsets make sense, the rental income offsets make sense for the expenses of each property. They'll allow you, they'll allow you or let you keep buying properties. So there's not necessarily a cap if you're doing real estate right and you're continuing to keep your credit score up and you're continuing to buy for cash flow and 
and do things properly, you should be able to keep refinancing the capital out of each deal. And when you've completed the work on that property you just bought, it should have created enough equity that you can buy the next one. So if you're doing real estate properly, the snowball continues on its own. All you have to do is inject your time, right? Obviously, some money has to be injected initially to get started, but the money should continue to roll itself. And that's sort of how I was able to build up a large portfolio of time. I've been able to teach my mentees the same thing. It's how, you know, I teach, taught a lot of people, I guess, who, who watch this. And I teach, continue to teach that today. And I do believe it is um, still possible and, and totally a great way to build wealth fast. It's a lot of work, but you can build wealth fast. Uh, it isn't necessarily an end game. I think when you get to a you know multi-millionaire status or even just millionaire status, maybe a little bit more than millionaire, you get to a point where you're like, hey, I can just retire by investing all of this in secured real estate, you know, 75, 80% loan to value, extremely low risk, less risk than putting money into a down payment, right? Because the down payment is always 80 to 100% loan to value, right? So there's, if the market drops 10%, you lose your down payment. But if you're lending, they lose their down payment first and then your money's protected and safe. And I think more than a 20% correction in the real estate market is not going to happen. The government will step in before that happens. So we're kind of protected more than a 20% drop. And 20% is a huge drop, by the way. Uh, I think on average, we won't see that in Canada ever. But you know, 5%, 10%, all possibilities, we don't know. Uh, 10% drop would be felt throughout the market and create a huge recession here in Canada. A large percentage of our GDP is real estate tied. So it would put Canada into a full-blown um, recession or almost like depression if that were to happen. So as a lender, protect yourself so you can still get paid during the depression. Um, but yeah, you get to a point where you're like, hey, uh, once you've built up that wealth, you find that real estate, if you make it completely actually passive, it isn't as, it creates less cash flow than private lending does. Um, so that's something that you kind of, you got to battle with, I guess. And that's something that I see a lot of investors as they grow in their maturity along the path of real estate investing, that's typically where they get to, um, is that they want to stop doing and start becoming more passive. So anyway, that's sort of the answer to your question. Um, you're definitely not capped at four. You can probably keep going. You might just need to shuffle things around. It might mean that one of your four properties that is the least cash flow positive, that makes the least amount of sense after you analyze them all, doesn't make any sense and you should sell it and buy something else that's better or sell it and buy two, right? So sometimes when you're stuck from a refinancing perspective, you have to be creative with how you move to your next step. I had the same problem. I got to five properties and I, the bank wouldn't let me refinance. It was too soon since I just bought the properties. There was, a, there was a seasoning period issue. There was, the bank didn't, I got it reappraised on one of them. The bank didn't like the appraisal. You know, stuff just came through that didn't make sense. So I sold the property and then bought two more with the equity. So sometimes you just have to sell a property that doesn't make sense and buy two more. I did that. I actually sold three properties in 2016. I think it was three. Um, and I bought six. So I took the, you know, take three and, and double it. So you can sometimes sell properties off and it makes sense where, you know, it's, it's too soon. You, you know, maybe you can't make any plays. There's always a play there. Just maybe you need a partner. Maybe you need to get creative with how you structure things. Maybe the title's not even in your name. Uh, or maybe you have to sell something and then, you know, use the, you can use the firm offer once it's sold and go to the bank and say, hey, here's my proof of down payment. Is a, my sold property. You can get to sell the property to your uncle or your, your best friend who wants to get an investment property. That would, that would get you the down payment proof you need to buy two more potentially, right? So just getting creative and thinking about how can we take this down and build real wealth um, through leverage. That's the secret to, to building wealth in real estate and being smart about it and analyzing your numbers. Great question. Okay, next question. Um, this is a good, good point, Bruno, about hitting the wall. Trevor says, hey, hey, how you doing, Trevor? Yuri says, hi, Mike, watched all your live streams recorded, but rarely make it to the actual live stream. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the live stream. Thank you for tuning in today, and hopefully I can add some value to your life. 
again, this doesn't make me any money, but it is one of those things where I feel like I'm serving a purpose for people and I feel like I'm providing value to people in a way that's almost like my way of, of giving back, my version of charity. And my time, I think, is more valuable to me even giving money at this point. So I donate my time to you guys. It means a lot when you smash the like button. So 12 likes and we've had well over 100 people tuning in out of this stream so far. Uh, I appreciate if you smash that like button. If you're watching the playback and you're one of the thousand people that love the playback, please take the opportunity to jump in the comments and say, hey, I appreciate this or that. Even just if you use timestamp certain things that I've said in comments after the show, people go there and they can find that what they're looking for. So that's all helpful. If you're trying to pay it forward or you know pass it along, those are all things you can do. So appreciate you so much for watching, all of you guys for giving me that you know the opportunity of your eyeballs because that means that you're getting value and it's the best way to, it's almost like when a performer finishes and people clap. That's watching my video is like you clapping because I can't hear anyone clap, right? It's just me sitting here in front of a camera talking. Um, but if you can smash the like button or leave a comment that's like you clapping and saying hey hey thanks for performing for me i don't have a tip but here's my here's my clap okay so next question scrolling up i lost my spot here it, it likes to jump down to the bottom comments i have to scroll the way up and try to follow one order hopefully i don't miss you if i miss your comment just call me out on it in the comments you know later on and say hey mike you missed my question um and i'm happy to answer it for all to see hey how you doing andrew Next question is, um, how would you do Mike's snowball? So you're talking about the Roseheart real estate snowball, not using the student rental. Main issue is that cash flow is not as strong, so it might be much more of a challenge to do a snowball. I actually, most of my properties weren't student rental, believe it or not. Um, I think like my second, third, fourth, fifth, they weren't student, sixth, seventh, wasn't even, none of those were, I actually did most of the Roseheart real estate snowball without student rentals. Um, even one of my student rentals that I had, I converted for a while to a duplex and had two professionals in it. I moved back to student rental a couple years later, but at the time I had almost no student rentals. Then I converted a lot more to student rental. I've moved back and forth. A lot of my properties are on the border, so they could do student rental or I could just do like it's a duplex. So I could just put two families in and the rents are almost the same. Um, it just so it just happens what time of year I'm trying to rent the property out, et cetera, and so forth. What tenant pool is looking at that time. Sometimes a tenant makes more sense than a family. It just depends on so many factors. So does it work without student rentals? Yes, for sure. Um, do you need cash flow to burr? No, not necessarily. You could buy a single family house and you could burr it. Um, so the bank doesn't necessarily need to see that it's a rental. You can burr, you could buy a single family house for $200,000 that's worth 400. You put 50,000 into it and you refinance it out with no rent. You just got a proper appraisal and pull the equity out. You don't even need the rent and, and the R for rent and burr. You could just burr it with one less R. Um, it just so happens that you scale faster if you have the cash flow from each property as well. So the burr is much faster and much better, much more powerful. It's like throwing gas on the fire, right? It just grows so much quicker. Um, so I definitely am a fan of the cash flow method of burring. And burring, by the way, is the best way to, to double your money. A burr by definition, if, you, if someone completes a burr, by definition, they've doubled their down payment. So the burst strategy means every investment that you make, you double your money. If I could tell you there's a stock trading strategy where you doubled your money every single time and you used a lot of the bank's money to do it, people would be all over that, right? They'd be arbitraging the hell out of it. The problem is real estate's hard. It's hard to actually burr. It takes a lot of skills that are hard to acquire. And for those people who are super smart, who can run the numbers, they may not be hands-on enough to execute. They may not have the time 
to get down and dirty on their property to unlock the burr. Because most burrs require a bit of unlocking. They might require you, you know, renovating a property. They might require you to change out the tenants in the property and to get down and dirty in the property to unlock that value in whatever way that it takes to unlock it. Each property has a different play. There's a different playbook for every property. You can repeat the same types of playbooks, the same types of properties, but there's just so many ways to skin the cat that I can't say there's one proper way to burr. But yes, when you're going back to the bank for the refinance, if you've got like three, four, five properties and they aren't cash flowing, they're just break even and like there's a lot of properties in Toronto and Vancouver that just break even. And so it gets hard to go to the bank if you don't have a good day job salary or a good other source of income, go back to the bank and say, hey, I wanna borrow more money. Because they're gonna look at it and say, you don't have the money to service the debt. So you can't burr this property because it doesn't have enough cash flow. So it's about buying properties that if you wanna scale the burr up to 10 properties, you know, do a, a series of burrs in a row, in a chain I call the Rosar real estate snowball. It's how you go from like zero to 10 properties in less than three years. You're gonna to need to buy properties to cash flow, which means by definition, you'll probably have to move to markets where there is cash flow, like London, Ontario, or Ottawa, or all these other cities where there is still cash flow, or in the, G in the outskirts, I guess, of the GTA, or et cetera, and so forth. All around the world, this works. It works in the US, it works in Australia. I have someone in Australia who I've worked with, we've done a burr. Um, in the US it works, for sure works in the US. It works better in the US than places in Canada in many cases. Uh, it works in Canada, it works anywhere in the world that you can get a mortgage on a property and there are certain cash flow metrics. There's certain metrics where it might not work. In some countries it might be very difficult to do it, but it can probably be done. There's probably someone who's done a burr in that country. It might just be more difficult. So challenge me and ask me about a country and I'll, I'll let you know if I know. And there's some countries where I just don't know. Um, but I know about Canada, I know about the US. And Australia, actually, coincidentally. Next question. Will Affleck says, how can you find a furnace guy for $2,300? Can you explain a bit more? So what I mean by that is like you find a licensed TSSA gas fitter, whatever, who has all their licenses and stuff, and you find someone who can swap the, the old furnace for a new furnace. So they know where to get out of a furnace. The furnace is like $1,000 for the actual furnace typically on sale if you buy like a decent two-stage, 95% efficient model. Um, I used to have a contractor friend who had an account there so I could see the prices. And then to install a furnace, they can do it in one day. There's you know a few hundred bucks in materials and piping and venting and things. But assuming like the, the plenum actually works for the furnace, it should be like a one-day swap. So if a guy's working for even $100 an hour, if he can get it done in eight hours, that's 800 bucks in labor, two, 300 bucks in parts, and 1,100, 1,200 bucks for the furnace for a basic rental property looking for, you know, average 50,000 BTU type furnace, which isn't like for an average duplex. Um, so you can get it done for like 2,200 bucks. Now Reliance comes in there and it's like, hey, we'll charge you $6,000 to do that job. They're gonna come in there, they're gonna be slicker, they might be, you know, more professional, they'll send three or four guys to do it as opposed to one guy, potentially two or three guys, I don't know, depends on the installation, I guess. They'll come out there, they'll give you a nice sales quote. It'll be just a nicer, better, feel-good process. Now, Reliance will mark up, if it's costing them 3,000 to install it, they'll charge you 6,000. So they have $3,000 in extra costs to cover their trucks and their fancy brand. And then they gotta make a huge profit for their owners as well. So you don't wanna be funding the profit of some guy who doesn't even do the work. That's been my thought. Um, I'd always rather go direct to the, you know, the guy who's installing. I like to work with companies where the guy is the operator. I like to put money in his pocket. So that's always been a philosophy of mine when it comes to plumbers, electricians, I like for the guy who's the, you know, on his own. Maybe he's got a helper for 20 bucks an hour that's like his apprentice. That's who I look for. They're more reasonable in their prices. They don't have the same overhead costs that they have to pass on. So that's who I look for. Try to put money in their pocket and be fair with them, right? Give them a price. Maybe it's a hundred bucks an hour, but it's worth it probably. 
way more worth it than going through like a big company um, that does, you know, the HVAC and stuff, right? The big companies charge you out the butt. So yeah, that's how you get it done for a furnace at that price. Every property's different. I'm sure if you need to rework your duct work and the, the, I mean, there's tons of variables that work to cost you 5,000 for a furnace, I don't know. But oftentimes it's double with a large company. Gail says, hi Mike, how are you and the family doing? Thanks for your advice and time. Thank you Gail every week for asking how me and the family are doing. I appreciate your, your comments. Uh, Gail, we're doing well. Uh, the family is, is doing great. We're enjoying the summer. I've been uh, really focused on fasting as of late. So today I did a 20 hour, 20 and a half hour fast. I almost went 21 hours, just shy, uh, but food was prepared so I had to eat it, didn't want it to go cold. Um, fasting has been one of the best things. I'm gonna take a two minute tangent and just kind of share because one of the things in the eight aspects of a fulfilled, happy life, like if you're looking for optimal fulfillment, and I think really anyone's, anyone who's chasing fire, financial independence, retire early, is really after a better life. And so most of us are after this lifestyle and real estate and you know, and the investing stuff and how do we save more money and work more, work harder to make more money and all that. That's all to get to this center of these eight pillars. And I did a video on this, one of my favorite videos that gets almost no views. So check it out, like not now because we're live, but another time, check it out. Um, it's sort of the eight dimensions of happiness. And it's the idea that there are eight aspects to a happy and fulfilled life. And one of those happens to be physical health. Another of them happens to be um, spiritual. There's lots of pieces to the puzzle, right? And so I'm always working on all eight of those things. And for me, financial mastery has kind of already happened. So of the eight areas, you have to continue to work on all eight of the dimensions at all times, but you can master one of them forever, and that's financial. You master financial wellness of, of the eight dimensions, and the other seven you have now, you've freed up all this time. There's Jonas jumping in, one of the mentees, um, coming in to say hi. But uh, when, once you've mastered the other, the other, you master the one, you have all the time in the world to chase the other seven. So you can live a much more fulfilled life than if you're working an eight to five job trying to chase the, the money thing. So I think you should get the money thing out of the way early. That's why I like fire so much because money's the, the easy one. You, you master that and you move on. Now you can spend your time focusing on your health and everything else. But anyway, do some, if you're interested in the health stuff, two keywords I'll give you that will help you uh, to learn about, you know, becoming more healthy. I've, I've been reading stuff about like the blue zones and the places where people live to be over hundred, like stuff about longevity and then just stuff about health. And what we know is that too much protein isn't necessarily good. We know that eating all the time, a lot of carbs, a lot of anything is not good, everything in moderation. But what we know is that if you go through fasting periods, your body has a chance to go through ketosis and burn on ketones. And there's another word I wanna use, it's um, autophagy. And autophagy means eating self, basically. It cleans up the plaque in your brain, it cleans out excess tissue. You could lose 100 pounds, and if you're doing it through with autophagy, you wouldn't have any excess skin. Like, you know, people lose weight and they have this massive amount of skin. That's because they don't do it properly. They don't go through autophagy. And autophagy typically takes, I might be saying it wrong, but I think it's autophagy, takes 72 hours to go into if you've been eating a lot of carbs. That's how long it takes of not eating before your body goes through ketosis and then goes into autophagy. And autophagy is so good for your body. It's hard to get Alzheimer's. It's hard to get dementia. Um, all that kind of stuff that the memory loss is associated with us eating too much too often, your body can't go through autophagy and clear out the bad plaque and a lot of the issues. You were watching the videos on it. I don't want to make this a health podcast right now, but I want to do a little tangent on that because I think health is wealth and it's important to, to be healthy. If you want to eat whatever you want, check out guys like the Blake diet or the, um, uh, what is it? OMAD, one meal a day. The guys who, who eat for two, three hour windows, whatever you want, you can eat for like a four hour window, whatever you'd like. 
and the rest of the time you just fast. And by the time you get back around to before your next meal, you get to a point where your body's used to it. I'm not even hungry for the first, like I go 20 hours or I'm not even hungry because my body's used to eating at a certain time every day. For me, it's around three, four, five o'clock so when I have my first meal. My last meal, typically around eight o'clock. Sometimes I push it a little later if I'm extra hungry. I wanna have a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more sustainment that or a little more sustenance that day. Um, but that's been for me amazing. Like I don't work out, I don't go to the gym. I'm not big into weightlifting. I go through phases where I want to do that and I do do that a little harder and it's on my bucket list of things that I should be doing more of. But I do like a lot of walks. I do walks with my daughter and my family and my mentees, we go for long walks. So I'm about, you know, talking on the phone, I walk and talk. So it's one of those things where fasting plus exercise equals super healthy body and mind. So it'll clean out your liver. It'll clean out all the organs in your body by going through autophagy. So something I strongly recommend. I started with 16 hour fasts. 15 hour fast and 16 hour fasts. That's the lowest that I do now. Every single day it's just a lifestyle choice. So like my last meal at eight o'clock, um, 12 hours from that's eight o'clock in the morning plus four more hours is noon. So I, if on a normal 16 hour day fast, I'd stop eating at eight o'clock at night. I wouldn't have my first meal until noon. You can't gain weight when you fast like that. You can't gain weight when you fast like that. I'll say it again, it, no one gain, when you have like a six hour eating window every day, you don't gain weight. What happens is you actually get healthy. The fat melts off you, you feel better, your body learns, instead of burning glucose to create energy, your body learns to run on ketones, right? So it go through ketosis. And so part of the day, you're running on ketones, which are a way more efficient form of energy. And basically, it's like putting logs on the fire versus most people are eating breakfast, which is a terrible thing to do. You wanna break fast breakfast later, after you've not eaten for like 16 hours. You don't wanna break your fast early, that's a terrible idea. So the breaking of the fast, the Romans called it, you break your fast. Uh, by the way, most cultures that fast tend to have better health prospects. So fasting, one of the best things you can do for your health. It is the number one health hack is fast. All you have to do is fast. Train your body to eat during a certain window of time. You can eat whatever you want. Ideally, you eat healthily in that window. But even if you don't eat healthily, even if you want to eat like a cinnamon bun and like some ice cream, you're going to need more than that to sustain yourself, obviously. But even if you eat the bad stuff, you can't gain weight and you will be healthier than if you didn't fast. Because you go through ketosis, you go through autophagy, then you clean out all the bad. So you have a chance for your intestines to reset, you have a chance for all that to happen. But if you're eating, like in the morning at eight o'clock and you have your last meal like 10 o'clock at night and you sleep and you keep eating all the time, your body has no chance to rest. Your immune system is constantly compromised. So don't do that and fast. That's my uh, random side tangent. Back to real estate. Uh, I don't know how that got there. And I see people are asking my fire number. I'll be happy to share. Um, what it is and how it's evolved over time. Because um, I my fire numbers change so many times and it continues to evolve and change as my goals evolve and change. And so I will answer that in a second, but I, let's get there first, let's get through the questions. And I, I like that question a lot, I'm excited for that one actually, more so than the real estate questions. So stay tuned for the person and persons who just asked about fire. Next question on the list is, uh, Kijiji, you have to look around and ask for referrals. Yeah, Jonas has got a great point there, he jumped in and, and chimed in there with, some advice. I think that's the key piece for finding contractors. You want to go through referrals. So you want to find a good contractor and ask them for people they know. Hey, do you know a good electrician? Do you know a good plumber? Do you know a good HVAC guy? Oh yeah, my buddy works at Reliance. He's a great guy. I'll pass you the number. Oh, my buddy works at blah, 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 uh, plumbing. He's a great guy. He does work on the weekends, the evenings, whatever, for 50 bucks an hour cash, that kind of stuff. You might find guys who, and you might find guys who have their own independent businesses. Oh yeah, I got a buddy who does roofing full-time, him and his son, father-son thing. Perfect. That's the kind of referral you want. You try them out once, you test them. But referrals are my favorite way to find um, trades, construction trades. Um, 
Yeah, especially if you have a good, we find a good worker, a good trim guy, probably knows good other trades, right? So you find a good guy, you ask for a good referral. You have a crappy contractor, don't ask them for a referral. You have someone who, you wanna ask for good referrals from people who have tested that contractor out. Yeah, so that's how you find them. Uh, there are there are freelance furnace like there are I know a couple of guys who are a little bit more money They might be 2800 bucks for a furnace, but who have their own company and they're a furnace company But they're an operation of two. Uh, it's like a father-son and they have a helper that comes out That's the kind of one you want to find versus a company that has 200 employees because the 200 employees They have a huge markup you think they'd be more efficient, but they're they're just not they have a lot more overhead cost And so they're less flexible on their pricing Especially the right time of the year, if you get in there when it's, they're not their peak and they're a little slow, they'll probably squeeze you in. If they have a second furnace installed that day, you might be their profit for the day. So they'd be happy to, to work out a little deal. Hey, Quentin, good to see you on as well. William says, Mike, so true on cash flow. My rent in Detroit is going to fix things. Will be 12 to 18 months until everything up to speed, paying taxes out of pocket. Exactly. And you know, when you first buy a property and you're going through the stabilization process to bring it to positive cash flow and catch up the deferred maintenance. And so when you first buy a property, there isn't cash flow. So expect that it's going to be a long window. If you want to fire now, know that if you're buying a bunch of properties, you're a couple years out from stabilization. If you go buy like six or eight burrs right now, you're a year or two from fire. So fire takes time. It isn't an instantaneous thing. You can just buy properties and you're fire. Um, and to be honest, I don't think you're even fired if you're managing your own properties. So it's a version of freedom. You're self-employed, you're an entrepreneur. It is way more flexible in a day job, way better than a day job. Nine out of 10 times, I would say that. But it's not financial freedom. It's not passive income. It's semi-passive, semi-active income. You have to work at them to keep them going. It is a better version than having to work at a desk job. It is an evolution on the freedom ladder for sure. Anthony says, with all these management fees and the multiplex property, doesn't it make more sense to just own a high quality single tenant, low maintenance property with no manager and maybe 200 a month in cash flow? Anthony, potentially, that's a good, um, if, you make, if you make those assumptions, then yes, I think that's a, that makes sense as a logical outcome. Um, there are single family, non-managed properties that cash flow better than some multifamily properties in the C and D neighborhoods, for sure. Uh, and that's, People don't understand that, but that's actually the case when you factor in the cost of bad tenants. Um, they will bankrupt your business. So factor that in if you're buying properties in the ghetto um, where you're gonna have a lot higher bad debt expense, vacancy expense, unit turnover expenses, uh, et cetera and so forth. Higher maintenance expenses because they just don't take care of the property in the same way. Key says, would you ever buy a property that needs to be gutted but is listed for super cheap, around $100,000? I'm not sure how much renovations will cost. Key, um, I would buy anything that the numbers make sense, but I'd want a large enough margin that even if I find things that I can't see behind the walls are bad, uh, I have enough margin to still make a profit. So assume everything is wrong with that house and cost out what it will be you know, for each and everything you have to repair and then add a huge contingency budget on top of that. So maybe that means bringing in contractors to give you quotes, several of them, so you can get an idea of what it actually costs to bring this property up to a certain standard. Then you'll know. Then whenever those quotes are, add 20%. To those and then you'll know if there's enough mar margin there to do it what I'm finding is that most of the stuff that needs a lot of work on MLS is trading at a multiple that it doesn't even make sense to fix the property up I it's crazy I had one flip where I regretted the flip we would have been better off selling the property the minute we got it for it was a private deal but I could have MLS it for more before I put a dollar into it than after we fixed it the profit was actually higher not doing the renovation 
which makes no sense. But investors are paying, looking for these burrs, and they're paying a premium for properties that need work because they're going in and it's a contractor dude who wants to get into real estate investing. He sees how great it is, whatever. He's like, I'm gonna do all the work myself. He discounts his time. He discounts the value of his time, puts his time at zero. He says, I can get this done for 30,000 in materials. Takes on a $100,000 project, ends up making almost no money. He just buys himself a salary for the year he's fixing up the property. And so that guy in the market is gonna overpay against me every time because I'm gonna outsource it. So I just can't compete, in which case they over, in my opinion, they're overpaying for the property. But in their opinion, they're buying themselves a job for the year. So it's, it's all about, you know, each property fits each buyer at the end of the day, right? So I think that's something that, uh, someone just jumped in and said, Harry, you finally talked about intermittent fasting. Yes, I did. The personal real estate of our body and health is much more important than the inert real estate. There you go. I use warm liquids only at least one morning a week. There you go. So yeah, Brent, it's one of the most fantastic health hacks you can ever have. I haven't met someone who practices intermittent fasting and goes through proper ketosis and proper autoph autophagy um, and is unhealthy. I've met people though that have had autoimmune deficiencies that cured themselves, that have had type two diabetes and cured themselves, who have gone through many different struggles, cancer even, and overcome it using these types of basically nutrition so it's, it's what you eat, but more important than what you eat, it's when you eat. So people, for some reason, like the 80s, there was this like propagated myth that you should have small meals all the time. And that's actually terrible. We were never designed that way. The human body is designed to eat a huge meal because food is gonna expire. And then we didn't eat for days till we hunted some more food down. We might have a couple of berries in between, but like we're designed, like the human body is designed to eat large meals and then not eat for a while and then eat again our body gets a chance to heal itself. Let the body work. So big fan of autophagy and ketosis. Look those two things up. Basically, if you intermittent fast for periods of windows, usually 16 hours a day, and then if you wanted to do one after a 16 hour fast, you'd eat the next day, maybe you do a 24 or 36 hour and you'd hit autophagy for sure. If you've been going through ketosis, you're like 18 hours away from autophagy. So it's very, very easy to do. And this is right, speed round time. Let's get it guys. Uh, I lost my place. Scrolling, scrolling. Found it. Forever Karen says, I used to manage properties, but now I just invest passively with zero headaches and a guaranteed return of 15%. Forever Karen, that's amazing. That's 15% uh, is pretty good. Do you get appreciation on top of the 15% or is your 15% just capped? Because my opinion is if you're doing 15% and you're providing the down payment, you're actually taking a lot of risk with your capital. Instead of what you should be doing, instead of being the last 20% of like the bank is secured first for 80% of the money on sale and you're secured for the last 20%. So you have the most risk. If the property drops 10% in value, you take a loss. A better is private lending at 15% where you're secured 80% loan to value and then someone else puts the down payment down. That's the better position to be in uh, and it's completely passive as well. It's literally private lending. Um, but you wanna make sure you're secured properly. That's one thing I'd recommend. I know some people structure their JV partnerships in a way where the investor's taking all the risk for 15%, that isn't as attractive as taking a lot less risk, potentially by not putting the down payment up, having someone else put the down payment up, and you be the bank in that position and put the 80% up. And flippers will pay 15% on the whole 80% mortgage. It makes sense for them. Their numbers can make sense where they can still make a profit. And so you're investing in, in their success and let them do all the hard work. Next question after Karen, I gotta find my spot. Could you and Matt do a video on how he got so many rentals? I'm very interested in this. 
as he is a few levels above me at this point, and I think it would be a good video. William, yeah, so my understanding is, um, I don't think Matt is acquiring properties himself anymore. I think he works through a partner, and there's a series of them together, so they all own a small percentage of big buildings that they're buying. So it's like the next level, I think, the way it kind of looks is, uh, you're buying large multifamily and you're going in with like five partners or three or four partners. You're not the active guy. You're just helping put the deal together. And you're getting 10 or 20% of these large apartment buildings. And what you see is that people have hundreds and hundreds of units, but they own such a fractal percentage and their net worth is actually not near as, um, or their net of the properties is not near as large as you might think. So people say they have a couple hundred units, but really they own a small percentage of that. So yeah, I think we should do a video on that. I think it'd be great to do a video on that. Um, I know myself personally, even my portfolio that had like, one point we had 60 something properties. I only owned, in most cases, less than half of all those properties. So really my portfolio was the same as someone who had 20 or 25 properties by themselves, right? So I was using partners to grow my wealth. And so I, I sounded like I had a lot more real estate than I did. And I'm not necessarily that many leagues ahead of most of you guys. I've managed a lot of units, et cetera, and so forth. But my net worth, you know, despite that we had at one point $20 million real estate portfolio, you know, we had 300 bedrooms or something, more than that. It, it sounds like a lot, but really, most of the investors owned a lot of it, and I didn't own a whole lot of it. So that's something to think about when you look at us like titans uh, who have done a lot in the local London market. A lot of us aren't as big as we make ourselves sound for social media, and so we're just, we're just like you. you know, we've just done a few more extra deals. Um, but yeah, I think that'd be a great video to do, and I'd love to uncover. I know last I had talked to Matt, he had had 17 properties. We had one 20plex that was like a bunch of little bachelor bedroom units and stuff but I don't know what his current portfolio looks like other than I was following him when he acquired, he was acquiring that other unit, 32 unit building. And yeah, I think it'd be good for us to go and do a video on that and we could each share our portfolio journey and how we got there. And I think that both of us will get to a point, I think for him it's more, maybe there's more social media benefit to it. For me, I'm more looking to not buy more units because I just see more headaches and there's not that much extra cash flow. In a lot of these cases, the cash flow isn't that good, but there's a lot there's a lot that goes into like the work-wise, there's a lot of energy that goes into acquiring these buildings. And more and more, I feel like it's just easier to like be on the transaction side as a real estate agent or be on you know, the lending side and make a huge chunk passively. So that's where I'm more pivoting now as opposed to buying buildings. I'm, and I'm still I'm acquiring a few properties here and there. They fall in my lap and I, I can't say no. Forever I'll be acquiring properties. If someone brings me a property for $100,000 that's worth 300 and needs a little bit of renovation, I can't help myself. Like I got one we're working on right now that I bought for 180,000 all in, wholesale fee included. That's worth 400 when we're done. And like something like that, I, I just can't say no to that. Even though I got to put 100,000 into it, there's 120 grand in profit. And it's like, if five of those fall in my lap, I, I can't not say no to them. So that's something I'm working on mentally. Like learning to say no to a lot of money is hard. But when I say yes to it, it means three months of my life. I have to go to that property every other day and I have to deal with contractor calls, et cetera, and so forth. So um, something I'm battling with, but you know, at the end of the day, we're nothing special. Like us guys who seem like we're like crushing it in real estate, a lot of us overstate because we're partnered on these properties. So like a lot of these properties, in some cases, these big buildings are 25% is our partnership share. And then we have a business partner, another business partner, another business partner, and then an investor that comes on, right? So it sounds like you have a huge portfolio, but like your triplex has more equity in it than our 30 unit building in some cases, right? So it sounds like we're doing so well, but maybe we aren't doing as well as you might think. And we're just normal people at the end of the day. We're just normal people and uh, we're not doing anything more special than you are. Happy to share what we're doing. I think it'd be a great idea for a lot of us to get together. We like four or five of us in London that should get together and talk about what we're doing. And I think that, you know, for social media, we'll always talk about the good. No one ever talks about the bad. And so we should do more of that too. We should talk about the bad more.
on our channels. And so that's one th that's one of my goals for 2020 has been to like be the one who brings the bad news that hey like everything isn't as great as it sounds in a lot of the cases. So next question. To retouch on mortgage lending talk from last week, if you decide to go mortgage broker route, would you recommend getting a lawyer to finalize the deal? How do you find a good mortgage broker? Yeah, so if you're gonna do mortgage lending, definitely find a real estate lawyer who has done a lot of private mortgage deals. And yes, you wanna use a lawyer because the borrower is paying for the lawyer costs anyway, who cares? Um, next question, I gotta go faster. There's so many questions. That's my spot here. Um, I discovered fire about a year ago and it is such an easy way to retire early. Totally true, totally true, Karen. A lot of people can retire sooner than they think. Parappa says, hey Mike, if you were to start all over again today, what market in Southwestern Ontario would you target? London, Ontario, because I live here and I know it. Um, yeah, like go where you live if it has cash flow. Should the real goal be one and a half percent if you are a new investor? I think if you're a new investor, Karen, you're not gonna find one and a half percent real properties unless they're C or D class properties. They're gonna be so hard to manage, have so many high maintenance and vacancy costs that they don't make sense. Um, yeah. Gail says, would it be better to manage the property if you are new to investing? Not sure if you answered this already, so I'll check the replay. Yeah, I think when you get started in your real estate journey, you should be managing the properties yourself so you can learn, so you can understand the cost of things and how it works. And so when you have a property manager and they send you a bill for a furnace, you know. When there's a plumbing leak and they send you a bill, you're like, I've done this a hundred times. I know it doesn't cost that much. I know you're marking me up. You can have that real, real conversation. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great way to start is to manage your own. And then eventually level up to completely passive. Or having someone in-house that you pay that does everything passively. Hi, Mike. How do you find the best systems for property management for stuff that is out of the city we, we live in? Uh, good question. Um, you have to find someone who's a local partner there first off. That's the most important thing. We have a couple of good maintenance guys and a guy who's open doing like maintenance plus some property management tasks. And then you can systematize a lot of it and take that and bring that system to each and every property that you own. And then if you have a good system in place, even like, you can just do like a Google Sheets and you know, have a, a manager that works through that Google Sheet, and there's your systems right there when you collect rent, et cetera, and so forth. So it can be actually really passive at the end of the day. I gotta go here, it's almost my daughter's bedtime, so I can hear them in there wanting me to get off the stream, so I gotta go quick. What are your thoughts on the Smith Maneuver? Uh, Smith Maneuver's great, I've talked on it like a dozen times on this, you know, probably in the last like 200 or 100 episodes, or however many episodes we've had now. Um, well over 100 episodes now, but the idea is that you basically borrow money from your house on a home equity line of credit or something and then take that money and invest it and now the interest on your house becomes tax deductible. So yeah, it's a great idea. I love using it. If you can get a tax deduction, why not? Dustin says, multifamily or single family? Ready to put my cash to work? Just the last stage of figuring out where and what I want to buy. It depends. There's no, yeah, sometimes single family can out cash flow a crappy multifamily property. Oftentimes multifamily out, out cash flows single family. So uh, it just depends. Uh, if there is a 20% drop, will they print money into your mortgage and inflate it away? Uh, it is possible. Anthony, that's one of the ways that they solve a, a real estate crash or, or I guess, so to speak. 
Um, but yeah, that is something that is possible, in which case, like, that is a risk. Um, you could, however, do something like, a, you could set up a mortgage where it's prime plus 8%, in which case, if the government increases prime, right, because they're gonna match this, the consumer price index, so they're gonna match inflation. Inflation goes from 2% to 10%, it's gonna be 10% plus 10%, so you're gonna have a 20% mortgage. So you could structure your private lending where you're set up hedged against inflation, right? You could also buy insurance protection, and there's other ways to hedge against inflation. Um, so just hedge against inflation, and then you're all good. Anna says multifamily, exactly. And then, uh, good point, Bruno. Yuri says, would you still cons consider, okay, considered, not spelled right. Would you still consider to convert any of your properties to Airbnb? Yes, I still have several properties in Airbnb and I'm poised to do very well when Airbnb recovers back to its full power, its full you know, price per night and, and you know, full number of bookings. It's been tough over the last few months through COVID on a lot of my properties that were furnished rental or short-term or medium-term rental. It's been really hard, but we're gonna come out of this stronger. And a lot of people are gonna fold over this time. They're gonna to switch to long-term rentals and just rent their place out and I'll still be ready. Hey Mike, if you have a lot of equity in your house and you refinance it, could you use that interest on the debt from the refinance to write off the rental income other than rentals? Um, yeah, so you have equity in your house. You could take the equity in your house and use it to buy properties and then it'd be entirely tax deductible against the rental income or the capital gains when you go and sell those properties. Use it for down payments, et cetera, and so forth. Luke says, hey Mike, what resources should I look towards if I don't know anything about real estate investing? I know a lot from you on Matt's channel this year. It's going to save me $40,000. And I want to learn as much as possible. So you're saving 40k to buy a property, then you need to go on and watch the Bigger Pockets podcast. That's a great resource. If you're not watching that, get out there and, and I myself have only watched a couple episodes or listened to a couple episodes, but I hear really great things. And the times that I have um, listened to them, they've been fantastic. So that's the place to go. When you JV with someone, do you also go on title or is a JV contract enough? Uh, I've done a lot where I didn't go on title and that was a mistake. You should register a second mortgage on title, notice of interest on title, or go on title in some way. I've been burned. I've had investors just say, sue me. And so that's been a pain. People are great and their word is great until it's not. Um, so definitely get on title and protect your interest. I would recommend that after the mortgage has been put on, then go and register yourself on title. Yuri says, thanks to you and Matt's channel. I'm on my third property in Calgary. Thank you for what you're doing. Much appreciated. Free accommodation for your family and Airbnb when you should travel to Alberta. Thank you. Um, send me an email about that. Send me an email to, uh, I guess, Rose Art Coaching, I think is the email that I use for YouTube at gmail.com and, and send me information about that. If I ever go out there again and do a road trip, I'll definitely hit you up. Harriet says, 1% seems unrealistic in London from MLS listings. Best I can get is 0.7%. At what point do you think it's better to just keep your money in the stock market if you can only get 0.5 to 0.7% rule in real estate? Well, I think that leveraged real estate investing, even if you're not getting a lot of cash flow, you can still make money from value add. So just because it's not 1% rule doesn't mean that it isn't still good in many situations. But yes, it can be difficult to find a 1% rule on face value on MLS. But you can go on MLS and you can see properties that are three bedroom that I know can be converted to six bedroom and then a 1% rule, et cetera and so forth, right? So there are opportunities uh, on maybe there's a property you could duplex or something. There's usually a way you can make 1% rule property. They don't sell as 1% rule unless there's something majorly wrong with the property. It happens occasionally, like once in a while, I've sold a property off that was in a rougher area that was at 1% rule. And so, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you've got to twist your tongue, you got to put some work in to get the 1% rule. It doesn't come for free now, unless it's an off-market deal. 
And typically, that's just a wholesale fee. If it's a wholesale fee, it probably won't make sense either. Uh, Gail says, I agree. I've replaced a boiler with an independent guy. Cost me much less. A coworker of mine used a big company that cost her a ton. Yeah, there you go. What was your fire number, Harriet? So my fire number originally was $625,000. When I was 17 years old, I said it was gonna be $625,000. Now that was over a decade ago. So that was like 2010 that I said, yeah, so in 2010, it's not 2020. In 2010, I said 625,000. Then when we had our, my first daughter, when we got pregnant with my first in 2015, um, I said, well, I'm gonna be having a child and this changes the financial plan a little bit. And so I adjusted to a million. And then I adjusted it some time after I retired and said, hey, I think a nice like lux fire number of five million would be a nice goal to hit. And so I've been chasing that for a bit now. And I mean, five million clean, like that would be like um, after all debts, et cetera, and so forth. So that was kind of um, where it's evolved to now. And, you know, my actual fire number, the number I need to be fired is probably like around a million dollars. So I'm, I'm well over fire for how I live. I could probably go upsize and get a bigger property. And I wouldn't even need to, I don't even house hack too. It's another thing that I do that I don't need to do, but that keeps me on the leaner fire side. And I like that. So, um, yeah, that's my fire number. I got to get ending the stream. I'm way behind on these questions. I'm almost fire. I only need to work two days a week at the moment. That's amazing, that's awesome. By early next year, I probably won't have to work, but I'm gonna keep going. I don't manage my own properties. That's awesome, you don't wanna to have to manage your own properties, it's terrible. The part-time is the ideal, actually. I think the ideal fire is doing something you love, whether it pays you or not, that is a part-time vocation. Brent says, hooray, you finally talked about intermittent fasting, we covered that question. Thank you for that answer, Mike. I was thinking about the exact same problem. It might not even be worth the flip after all of the work. Totally true. A lot of people get into projects that make no sense. I don't need to be humble, but you know you're good. Yeah, at the end of the day, I'm not that special. And that's the point. Like me and Matt and all the guys who are like crushing it, we're just average people. And a lot of us are not near as successful as you might think we are in your mind. Like you'd meet us and be like, we're average people. We're nothing special. And so that's something to, to kind of factor in that I'm not doing anything at another level. Like I just, I've done more deals. Doesn't mean that I'm that much better. I'm like maybe 10 or 20% more efficient because I've done so many deals so many times. Okay, next question. Oh, I lost my spot. Sounds like a good situation to be in. Oh, thanks, Larry. Appreciate that. Harriet says, our bungalow is easy to convert to duplexes. Is that a common strategy? Very common strategy. Yeah, very easy to do. Oftentimes, you can just cut the duplex in half, front and back. Or if it's um, like a bungalow style, you could also just do like a top and bottom, a basement apartment. Very common. Assuming it has the bones to work for headroom, etc. Brent says, tips for beginners. Everyone does a natural fasting at least 12 hours overnight. Just sip warm water or tea instead of breakfast and you can easily reach 18 hours or more fasting. There you go, cleansed. Uh, 18 hours, if you've been already through ketosis and been fasting, then an 18 hour fast on top of that would give you autophagy, which is the goal. Ketosis is great, but autophagy is like, that's the goat. Um, great points. Fasting 12 hours is not that hard. Have your last meal at eight, 30 at night and eat your first meal at 8 30 in the morning boom you're at 12 hour fast that's like 12 hours is a joke um 120k falls on your lap seems like a good problem to have yeah i mean it is but i i do work hard like i work way too hard and i keep planting the seeds so i'm asking for the punishment of the work because i keep trying to get the deals and i do a little bit to keep myself in the game and 
that's part of my mistake, right? A lot of the energy that I put out there still coming back a year later. Like two years ago, I was cultivating relationships and saying, hey, looking for an off-market property. And then a year later, someone calls me with that property. So seeds I planted a year ago are coming to fruition and, and turning into plants now. So plant seeds today, and two years from now, you'll have a harvest. Yes, huge debt is making the so-called titans in real estate look far better than they actually are. That is how Dan, Dave Ramsey became a millionaire in his 20s, and then banks took it all. Well, Brent, I think the thing to realize with uh, Dave Ramsey is he got levered into real estate that didn't cash flow. So he did real estate wrong. Um, if he had done real estate the way that I preach it, he would have been fine um, through the 80s. He got into, I don't really follow him a lot, but what I understand is that he made bad decisions in how he did leverage real estate investing. And that's part of his problem. Um, but yeah, I could see how someone doing something wrong and then saying, just his advice is bad. Like his advice is like, hey, I did real estate investing. I did it wrong, so don't do it at all. Debt is bad. And debt isn't bad. That's a tool like any other. He didn't know how to use the tool properly, obviously. And so for the average person, he's like, well, they can't understand how to use the tool, so I'm just gonna tell everyone not to use it. But it's actually a really powerful tool if used properly. So debt is a good thing if you know how to use it properly. There is good debt. There is such a thing. But thank you for bringing that point up about of Dave Ramsey. Next question. Hey, Mike, well, you suggested the best way to save up for down payment, but still grow those savings. High interest accounts are so low these days, and inflation is probably outpacing. Yeah, good point. Depends on how soon you need the liquidity, but uh, one way it could be like lending. Another way is just putting in an exchange-traded fund or an ETF might be another way to kind of at least get some return. I'd have to think on that what I would do. Um, I always kept my money kind of working in other stocks or into real estate. I always had a deal going that kind of once I had my first property, I could just inject more money into that same property to renovate it, refinance it, and pull the money out. So there's there's always a property that needs something done where I can invest my capital and get a good return. Even insulation is a fantastic investment you can make on a property anytime. And you'll save yourself hundreds in utility costs every year. Like literally the return on investment on insulation in a property to go from like R20 to R50 can be like 100% ROI. So it's, it's crazy how there's, when you have a portfolio of properties, you always have a good investment you can make at all times. But I guess with your first property, yeah, it's tough until you get your first deal. Just, I guess, you could do like some peer-to-peer -peer lending or something, um, like lower risk, stuff like that. There are ways you can invest and, and get a marginal return until you've amassed a certain amount of money. Once you have 10 or 20,000 or 30,000, then you can invest in something like private lending or you can even start looking into buying real estate or partnering with someone. But when you're first starting with a thousand bucks or 2,000 bucks, it doesn't matter that much. If you're getting a 2% return or a 5% return on two grand, the difference is like nothing. Um, we're talking like a couple of bucks, like a dinner out, is the difference in you trying to find a 2% interest rate versus 10% interest rate return. So I'd say if you have not a lot of capital yet, focus on earning more money. Um, rather than trying to maximize the returns. You maximize returns when you have capital. That's when it actually matters. Like a 1% change in net worth when you have millions of dollars is in 1% uh, change in the rate of return on your net worth when it's large is astronomically more impactful than when it's small. So spend your time um, focused on earning more money probably in the beginning of the journey. With the commercial real estate lease last week, sir wants the leasee to pay hazard insurance and property taxes. It's a five-year lease and the leaseor wants to raise the real, the rent anytime taxes go up in a year. It is just normal for commercial leases. There is no normal in commercial. I've seen some crazy stuff. The problem is in commercial, it's like the wild west. There's just not uh, a standard or, the landlord can do whatever they want in commercial. In commercial, they can just kick you out. They can raise the rent, they can just kick you out. Um, when the lease comes up for a they can say, hey, your rent is double. 
if they want to. They probably won't because they won't have another tenant to fill it. So it's in their best interest to work with their tenants often. It's harder to find commercial tenants. So they got to work with the tenants that they have. And only so many tenants commercially are suited for a space. And so it's a different world. Um, the landlord has all the power in commercial. The hard part is finding the tenant. And so you want to work with the tenant and find a reasonable solution. But depending on the business, hazard insurance might make sense uh, to protect the landlord. Thank you, William. Appreciate the comment. I will do that. If you have questions, might be better to copy and paste the comments after the stream. He is on his way out. Levin, 100% right. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. We're at the 76-minute mark, so I'm supposed to wrap this up at the hour mark. Thanks, Mike. Have a good evening. Thank you, Trevor. Okay. Um, good night, Mike. It typically, there's stuff like a triple net lease where on the commercial side where you just pay all the property taxes. So some tenants literally have to pay all the utilities, the pro property taxes, everything. Um, so it's not uncommon for the landlord to pass all of the property tax on, whatever it is, to the tenant. Um, so yeah, monthly rent can be very flexible. It's very normal uh, in commercial. <laughs> True, you're so normal that you wear only t-shirts. You know, I do wear not t-shirts, but yeah, a lot of the time I just like wear whatever. Um, I'm an average person, the same as anyone else. Like, hell, when you meet me in the wild, you think I'm a bum student. I'll give you an example. Like yesterday, someone came to our door. I was outside with my daughter and they assumed she was my sister. And I was out there, like she was riding her bike. My daughter was out to ride a two-wheel bike, by the way, at four years old, super proud of her. Uh, jinx that she stays on the path and continues to grow and progress, you know, above average, I'm so proud. But anyway, someone came to the door and said, hey, I'm getting, my wife was selling something on Facebook or something. And uh, they said, hey, is your mom there? Like, they couldn't believe that I actually owned the house that we live in. The neighbor's kids are almost my age and live at home because you know, a lot of houses here are more well-to-do. Kids stay at home until like 25 now. I look like I'm under 25. I'm 28, but no, 27. I will be 28 uh, this year. But it's crazy that people like, I get ID'd at the bar and like this kind of stuff just happens. I'm, I'm an average kid. People think I'm a kid, to be honest. Um, so no one thinks I'm, like if you meet me in the wild, no one's like, hey, Mike's just like multimillionaire, 10 years of real estate experience because I look so young. Um, so yeah, I am an average guy, just an average person. Last question. Oliver says, what would you do differently if you were living in Vancouver and didn't want to leave? I'm debating just staying invested in renting versus buying a one bedroom condo because it's so expensive. If I was invested in Vancouver, I'd probably find a house hack. Um, I like to own, it's an emotional thing for me. I like to control where I live and have, like, I just like to be able to renovate a property if I want to or do something different because it's mine. So I'd probably buy a house like an eight or nine bedroom house or buy like a five bedroom house and convert it to a nine bedroom and find a way to rent it out like the rooms or something or make a duplex or triplex out of it so it could at least cover my most of my mortgage. And I know it wouldn't be cash flow positive. I know I even the house hacks there aren't that great, but that's what I would do personally. Or what I would do is if I didn't have the capital to do what I, like that's what I would do if I had capital. If I had no money, I'd just go rent like a eight bedroom house in Vancouver and rents are not that crazy and like, you know, like Burnaby or somewhere, right? Um, and then I re-rent out sublet spaces in the house and offset my rent so I can live for free. Um, that's what I do in Vancouver. And I probably wouldn't buy a lot of real estate in Vancouver unless there was some really good, like if someone brought me a $1.5 million house worth 1.9 or 2 million, I might jump on that, but I wouldn't be on the MLS really searching that hard. It's just the numbers don't make a lot of sense. Anyway, thank you everyone so much. 80 minutes of content. I went way over. I appreciate y'all watching. 
You know the slogan that I use every single time. It is my catchphrase that I've been saying for over two years. The secret to unlocking a wealth through you, unlocking fire, is three levers. That's it. It's dead simple to master personal finance. You have to spend less, earn more, and maximize the returns on the difference. So it's what you spend, it's what you earn, and then it's the returns on the difference on your net worth. So that's how you build wealth. Those are the three things you got to focus on to build wealth. All three, ideally. Thank you everyone so much for watching and we'll see you in the comments and we'll see you next week. Smash that like button and we'll see you in the comments. And on Instagram, have my gross heart. Bye everyone.